Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Did we take for granted that we had competent intelligence? What is the whistleblower laid bare? for us as Canadians. And I know we got a lot of stuff to worry about, but if you got to worry about it, maybe we should deal with reality. Uh, today, I'd like to welcome Christian Lupret, political scientist with Queen's University, and also an author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. Christian Luprecht, how are you? Happy Sunday to you. Good afternoon, Arlene. You know, just the title of your book kind of gives us a reason why we should care about this, Christian. I mean, the whole the whole country is deciding what's important to them, what do they hang on to, but there's been a drip, drip, drip here. And from all your research, is this an important moment before we begin? Well, at least in a couple of ways. One is that it's often said that intelligence is our first line of defense. It's how we anticipate the threats and the challenges, the risks that are coming our way. And so it's meant sort of as a canary in the cold mine, early warning system. And this is why governments all over the world, democratic and otherwise, pay for intelligence, both foreign intelligence and domestic intelligence. Um, now, of course, in a democracy, it's up to the government of the day to decide whether to act, how to act. Uh, but certainly it is puzzling that uh, we have a hostile authoritarian um, state actively undermining those democratic institutions and values that the government not only uh, claims to cherish and espouse, but that, of course, we as Canadians value. And so a bit puzzling kind of that we, for years, keep trying to kick the can down the road rather than to act on it. The other part is, of course, that I think we're rather naive about national, national security intelligence mm -hmm. in this country, in part because for decades we've thought we're far away from the world's problems. And so my assessment of the political class in this country is that they've proven themselves pretty immature in response to uh, connecting the dots and the assessments that they have received. And so this might be a good opportunity to wake up and realize the 21st century is very challenging geopolitically, and it is particularly challenging for democracies in this world, both domestically and internationally. Is there anything you have learned, as we all have as a country, that surprised you? I mean, you've had your nose in this. This is, uh, this is what you, you do. For a lot of Canadians, it's a really kind of a scary awakening. we got enough to be flipped out about right now. And now we're wondering, has our government done enough? And I'm not just talking about this government. I mean, has our government for decades done enough here? Yeah, it's, I think, the privileged circumstances that we've been able to live in yeah. for decades in terms of not really having any sort of immediate direct threats to our own political stability, to our prosperity, to our social harmony, or even our territorial integrity in this country. Um, it's what's made us what we are today in terms of one of the most desirable countries in the world uh, to live in. Um, at the same time, look at our allies, uh, especially in the Indo-Pacific, look at a country such as Australia that has long had a very realistic appreciation of the world, given that within 1,500 miles of its borders, you have half the world's population, and most of these countries aren't particularly friendly. And so I think the problem we have in Canada is we um, project from our own experience outward, and this is sort of just standard sort of human nature that we replicate based on our own experience. We think this is how the rest of the world lives. And it turns out the rest of the world actually <laughs> lives in very dangerous circumstances and takes its security very seriously, in part because they've learned very hard lessons in the past about what happens when you don't take it seriously. And I think the issue in this country is I worry that uh, – 
we're on the one hand becoming um, increasingly less relevant to our allies because we're not taking the situation seriously. Um, and on the other hand, we're actually putting precisely those attributes that have made this one of the greatest countries and most desirable countries in the world to immigrate to and to live in. We're putting those basic principles in jeopardy by not acting. All right. I'm going to go back to that. It's such an important point. I also want to talk about what we know now. I mean, this story broke. There was pushback. The government is the day of the day, as you say, and the liberal prime minister, Justin Trudeau, came out and said the initial story in the Globe and Mail was false. Then we have a to and fro happening from some of the other stories. However, the whistle and the motive of the whistleblower, there was an attempt to make it about that, and they all are important. But what do we know, Christian? As I said, as we began the show here today, cliche, but where there's smoke, there's fire, and there is fire here. We do know that what was reported now is part of a big national conversation. What did we know? And also, what did we do about it? So uh, have things been laid bare no matter what the inquiry said? Are there big questions here from that initial report for you? So I think this is sort of the, so governments always want to avoid situations uh, where people ask questions about who knew what when and where. And so this is what the government is kind of trying to extricate itself from. And we can see that its approach to that is we're not going to answer any questions and we're not going to tell you anything. And I think unlike the SNC-Lavalin affair, in this particular case, the government feels it can control um, both the facts in quotation marks as well as the narrative because it's national security. So it can hide behind the national security screen, I think unjustifiably so, and say, well, we can't tell you anything because that's all intelligence and it's all highly classified, which of course, much of this material is, uh, or at least sort of the implications of the assessments and so forth are not. So the government could tell us a lot more. The government has chosen not to tell the public a lot more. And I think that has been a political calculus that it has made. But as I also point out in my op-ed, for instance, in the in the Globe and Mail on this, mm -hmm. that when we've had whistleblowers in the past, as you point out, the smoke has turned out to be that there is actually fire there. And whether mm -hmm. we look at the United States, whether we look at the United Kingdom, whether we look at Australia, and in the bulk of those cases, that has been followed up by some form of commission, of public inquiry, of civil servants systematically examining what happened, precisely to provide opportunities for government to rectify the situation, give the government some options. Well, in this case, the government has had options going back to at least the report by the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians in 2019, probably earlier, on which has already decided it is not going to act, but it's going to slow pedal uh, the situation. So the government has obviously decided that it's not interested in options and it's not interested in acting um, on this particular matter. Rather, I think it continues to try to sort of try to obfuscate um, and minimize, largely out of its own, I think, political interest. What motivates that is hard to say. Is it that this is a topic that the government is just not interested in in terms of its policy agenda? It wants to talk about other things, whether it thinks that this is going to be too controversial to deal with, so it's easiest just to avoid it, or whether it feels that it can only lose votes, it can't gain votes as a minority government, every day is about survival. Nonetheless, I think the problem here is the government is acting in its own particular will rather than in the best interest of the country. You know, as Canadians, we listen to it all as it began. And, you know, you try to weigh it. And certainly as a journalist, you're, but it's a mess now politically. If they were trying to control it, I, I can't imagine they're high-fiving right now. I mean, know Katie Telford batted away a lot of questions. But for all the reasons that you just listed, this is still out there. Christian, I, I just want to return to something you said in our opening segment there, that around the world we're becoming less relevant. How important is that context as we look what we're facing here politically and knowledge-wise on this story? Well, certainly it is in a couple of ways. One is that Canada has always uh, proverbially punched above its weight. But of course, in international affairs, 
there's no class of punching above your weight. You can be a middle power, you can be a superpower, you can be a small country that's not particularly relevant um, at the periphery. And so Canada has done that by uh, investing and proving itself as a worthwhile multiplier because it always had important things to offer. Think about the institutional, international institutions in which Canada invested heavily at the end of, uh, after the disasters of the Second World War. Uh, think about the way we've used our Canadian armed forces to prevent um, major war uh, between superpowers, sometimes known as peacekeeping, which wasn't ever, which wasn't ever about really keeping the peace per se in countries. No. It was always about trying to prevent the superpowers from going to war. But of course, over the last 20 years, benign neglect has meant we've had little to offer when our allies and partners have now in the last year and plus uh, come to ask for more. And so that means we just don't have the voice we used to have around the table. We can still sit at the table, but increasingly, it's also that Canada not only does it no longer have a voice at the table or a vastly diminished voice, it also means that to some of the meetings, we're not even being invited anymore. And that means that essentially a government has abrogated its responsibility to be able to assert the national interest of Canada beyond Canada's boundary. It means that we're increasingly drafting behind our partners and allies when it comes to international decision-making. On the domestic front, it means that increasingly people aren't sharing with us and aren't providing to us the sort of intelligence that um, might have made us um, a more important player than in the past. What's being provided to us now are things that are of immediate uh, concern to our own national security, to the security of the continent and uh, to our country. So basically anything that, especially the United States, but our allies also feel they need to share with Canada because uh, it would otherwise weaken Canada too much if they didn't. Um, but the commitment by an ally is that you're, you engage in positive sum gains. That is to say, mm -hmm. everybody contributes, so we're all stronger together. And increasingly, the perception of Canada is that Canada is a weak link um, because Canada doesn't feel it needs to make the investments necessary in order to be stronger together. And so our allies say, that's fine, but they're just going to move on without us. And that yeah, because diminishes Canada's influence. Yeah, we're seeing um, organizations come together. We're left out. We took it all for granted. Are they fed up? We're, we're, we're kind of seeing that, that you know, we walk around thinking, oh, you mentioned that you're with Canada. All the allies are thrilled and they all do. They like us. They like us, Sally Field, but they are fed up. We haven't been paying our way. How serious is it? So, look, I don't think that they're fed up, um, in part because Canada's contribution to some extent has always been discretionary. If you look at NORA, there's this perception in Ottawa that the United States need Canada to defend the continent. Well, the reality mm -hmm. is that they don't. Uh, the United States can just do it on their own. They're happy for Canada <laughs> to contribute and to share. Um, and that's meant we've had significant influence in Washington as a result. But they don't need us to do this job. Um, similarly, when you're in Europe and you're a major country in Europe, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, uh, but even some countries on the periphery, as we see, for instance, Finland, Denmark, um, uh, Poland, uh, you're a key strategic ally simply of where you're located. The problem with Canada is where we're located is relatively irrelevant to most of our allies and partners. And so that means the way we make ourselves relevant is by being, being able to show that we have a significant capacity to contribute so that we can assert our national interest um, and perhaps steer some of the conversations in ways that serve not just the local interest of our particular allies and partners, but also our interests at the same time. But of course, all right, I want to just stop you there for a moment, us, Christian. Then, and yeah, if I could just ask you, you said that we've become less relevant. When was that moment? I would say this has been a gradual uh, mm. decline over the last 20 years. And it's been partially that, you know, we've never, I think, recovered from in the 1990s. There was this perception of the peace dividend. Everybody's going to live happily ever, ever after. Everybody's going to be democratic. Everybody's going to be liberal. Everybody's going to be capitalist. Um, and so everybody divested, uh, both in foreign policy generally and in particular in security, intelligence and defense capacities. And then 9-11 came and we realized that, oh, the world is actually a bit more dangerous than, uh, than we realized and than we thought it was. And it wasn't all sort of happy kumbaya um, after all, sort of sit around the fire, uh, the campfire. And, uh, but we kind of uh, still for 20 years had the privilege of it being discretionary. 
um, what missions we went on, and what force packages we sent on those missions. And so now we no longer have that discretion. If you look at, for instance, at Ukraine, if you look at Arctic security, if you look at the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. but as a result of not really having had sort of this benign neglect of 20 years, now we don't have a whole lot to contribute. And look, other countries have sent a clear signal. If you remember, after the invasion of Ukraine, Germany said it's going to invest $100 billion in defense mm-hmm. as a one-time investment. Now, of course, Germany has watered that down since, but it was a clear yeah, signal from Germany. But they succumbed to European, the pressure, didn't they? They did something. That it, They wanted to send a clear signal mm-hmm. that European security is not going to be decided without yeah. Germany. Um, because they realized that they weren't being taken serious to the extent that they should have. And so the government had a choice uh, over the last year or so to kind of send that clear signal. But what the government has done is sort of invest a little bit here and a little bit there, sort of Mm -hmm. enough to kind of be seen as doing something, but not so much as to perhaps then actually have an honest conversation with Canadians about what Canadian defense, foreign security uh, sort of policy should be. And the problem is that we've always had this very homeopathic stance in this country when it comes in particular to national security and intelligence. Um, And it doesn't appear that the government thinks it's certainly in its political interest uh, to change that. We're going to talk about space, outer space, and what we may be witnessing here. It's been a while. You know, technology has shown us that all sorts of telescopes and everything, they can see way more. And I just find it so fascinating. I know I'm not alone. But this mission to go back to the moon really kind of ignited and laid bare what could be a space race. It sounds great. You know, U.S. against Russia. It was an easy way of settling the score without lives lost and going to war. And now the observation is that it's China and the United States of America. Are we part of a United States space race against China? And if so, Who's got the advantage? Joining us live, Svetla Ben Ishak, Assistant Professor, Space and International Re- Relations, Air University. Svetla, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Arlene. My pleasure. We're kind of all excited about it. You know, we've got, a, I don't have to lay it out, pandemic and inflation and troubles and all of that. And to be able to look and 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 find something outside of planet Earth for us to put our attention in, it's just so refreshing. Uh, Svetla, are we in a space race right now? Um, in my opinion, uh, it is far more complex than just saying we are in a space race. Because uh, saying that, it would not do justice to the complexity of actions and the multitude of actors that participate um, currently in outer space. So I would say the reality is much more complex <laughs> and nuanced. Uh, and I would say no, not, we are not in a space race. Uh, and I can explain why if... Um, interested. We would. It's kind of like being in recession and we wonder, we go and we we see the price of things go up, but with inflation and we wonder, are we in recession? And then um, by the time they admit we were, we're kind of past it. Is it the same as the space race? What criteria are you using? Uh, Yes. So um, if we define what is a race, right? Uh, A race is generally a competition to determine which one is the fastest or to win something, right? Or to do something first. Um, and I argue that uh, in space, uh, first, number one, um, it is very, uh, the, the goal, what is there to win? There have been many firsts that have been accomplished already. For example, the first man-made object in space, the first um, man to orbit Earth, the first uh, man on the moon, and etc. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but nowadays, um, kind of the... Um, uh, finishing line is shifting and is going in all directions, uh, if you will. Um, so this is number one. And number two, so it's a competition. For competition to occur, for a race to take place, uh, it is important that all participants actually have some sort of comparable c- capabilities. Uh, maybe I would like to race, for example, Usain Bolt, <laughs> as much mm-hmm. as I would like to. Um, by the time, actually, I start the race, he will have finished, Right. Uh, yeah, there it is. It's right. like a recession. It's over by the time, by the time <laughs> right. we know. 
So, so I'm arguing that actually uh, mm-hmm. the capabilities are very different if we look at quantitative capabilities, who is doing what in space. There is a clear dominant state, the United States in space, uh, by various measure, measures that we can examine. Um, and But... Um, the, the United States, even even though it's dominant based on several measures, it's all, it's working very closely with partners in networks, including Canada, um, mm-hmm. and China is doing the same, but on much smaller uh, on a, on a much smaller uh, scale. Yeah, so allies addition, matter even when you're you're right. in some in kind addition, of a. There are also other mm-hmm. players that have similar capabilities that uh, that even surpass. Uh, some of China's. Yeah, it's not China. India, India has a massive India, interest yes. in space. Well. India is working together with Japan. Actually, they have their own kind of mission to go to the moon um, in the near future. Um, probably even launching something this year. So um, we can even speak of a tripolar race, but we're not going there because <laughs> actually sometimes the partners work across. Um, so Russia is participating in the, in the International Space Station, so we're working with them. Um, Japan is participating in the Artemis Accords that is led by the United States. Mm-hmm. So it is not as well-defined, as clearly defined, as neatly defined as some may, may, may would like to actually argue. I mean, let me ask you, what does space stand for? The old one, U.S. and Russia, it was about power. You used the word dominance, and it's exactly what I was thinking. It is important. Look at that. We were reading and hearing about an attempt for this new world order, and clearly it is no coincidence that a lot of the countries like China, who are hoping, and Russia for one, are involved in this. How important is it right now geopolitically around the world, how <laughs> mighty do you look if you are solving and going into new frontiers, if I can borrow a, a line there, uh, in the space world? What does it say about your country, Svetla? Um, right. So right now we have uh, 75 countries that have uh, space agencies and even more have uh, operating satellites um, in different orbits uh, in outer space. Um, the United States is clearly leading in terms of spending. The United States is spending triple the budget of China, uh, at least, and it's growing. Um, there are several countries that are spending in the billions of dollars. Those include China, Russia, France, Germany, the European Space Agency. Canada, actually, Canada is really boosting um, its budget to $2.5 million. Actually, they just announced it. Um, to support um, various missions, including Canada's participation in the International Space Station and uh, providing um, certain parts for the Lunar Gateway together with the United States, etc. So the landscape is actually oh, also Japan. In, uh, among the countries mm-hmm. that spend billions in space, Japan, India, uh, among the top spenders. So there is a big gap between the United States um, that annually spends right now around 60 billion with a B uh, in space. And the next in line is China with about 10 to 16 billion, right? So there's a big gap. That's um, a lot of billions you've gone through there. Svetla, it seems to have been renewed. It was quiet for a while. I mean, all eyes were just basically on NASA. What started this? Why is it being spurned onward right now? Um, actually, the public interest has been renewed mm-hmm. thanks to SpaceX and kind of mm-hmm. private missions to space that reignited this enthusiasm, right? But there have been various, many missions, uh, state-led missions throughout the years. Um, and the talk about the space race, per se, some sort of kind of antagonistic meaning, perhaps came uh, in, two, I mean, after 2007 when China tested their anti-satellite weapon to destroy one of their satellites, defunct satellites. And then mm-hmm. the U.S. followed with one of their own in 2008. Then India did one, a test in 2019. <laughs> and then Russia did one in 2021. So they showed also that they have offensive weapons that they can use in space, right? They can destroy satellites. So, um, but everybody realized that nobody wins <laughs> from creating more debris in space because space is a global commons um, that orbital debris, for instance, or weapons can harm anybody op- operating in space. 
Yeah, um, so it's it's no, a whole different frontier. But Svetla, right. I just want to dwell on that just for a little bit. There's a laying down of boundaries out there. And you're a professor of space and international relations for a good reason. Already, the space laws are being determined, aren't they? I mean, we are seer- sitting here on planet Earth, but already I'm fascinating on the work that's being done on what happens when all these countries lay their mark down in space. Right. And actually, there are quite a lot of space lawyers working to draft new, I know. new laws in space. <laughs> There's an entire new field out there. Um, but right now, the countries are operating. There are five main treaties in outer space, uh, starting with the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Um, and then followed by several other treaties, and they're still um, applicable, even though they were signed back in the 1960s, 1970s, right? We, have, we need to update those, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and countries mm-hmm. are working. But one, one actually attempt to update those um, has been the Artemis Accords, led by the United States and signed by 23 additional countries, including Canada uh, and uh, one territory. And they are actually premised on um, articles uh, of um, kind of articles to uh, agreeing to international cooperation, to sustainability in space, and etc. Um, now, China and Russia also intend to go to the moon, to the South Pole of the Moon, by 2028. So within the mm-hmm. same time frame, but their scope is much smaller, and they don't have the same principles, legal principles, binding legal principles. Um, so uh, the two missions cannot be quite compared, except that <laughs> the target is the moon and the South Pole and within the same uh, kind of t- time frame. There you go. You know, all the yeah. things that you're involved with, all the things that we've been talking about, space race, the money, the millions, billions is really more correct that you've been laying out for us. Is there a pushback here? Do, do you look at it in your, your studies here, how it, how people feel about this? Should we spend this money? Is it morally and ethically correct? Is that part of the discussion, Svetla? Uh, always, yes, absolutely. Uh, it is part of the Space Force discussion, NASA discussion, um, defense discussion, defense spending discussion, the civilian space spending, etc. Um, the matter of the fact is that there will always uh, be people who um, will disagree. Uh, and we are talking here about billions of dollars, even though uh, NASA's budget and the space budget is actually um, very minuscule, 2% of the, of the total um, U.S. Um, government space uh, spending budget. Um, but uh, investing in space, um, it provides both tangible and intangible benefits. Uh, and many uh, space technologies that NASA has developed throughout the, I mean, since the 1970s, Actually, there's an entire site um, dedicated to off-spin technologies, <laughs> uh, space technologies that have been adapted um, to Earth usage. Um, so th- there are really practical benefits um, back, the uh, kind of investing in space gives back to the ground. Um, in addition, it provides some something to dream about, right? Something to look it forward does. to. Um, it is not just the tangible benefits we get from investing in space. It's, it's also... No, um, it's something, as you say, can, dream. I, I love that right, word, dream. What, what, All what right. we can build for our children and the future generations. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Dominion Voting Systems will walk into a courtroom against Fox News in a case tomorrow that has been called by 
some media reporters the biggest media case of their lifetime, hands down. America bracing for what the fallout could be. Let's face it, Fox News, one of the most or the most powerful media outlets in America, cable outlets, anyway, as they head towards this trial. And also from Canadian eyes and ears, it could have an impact on how we deal with misinformation, disinformation. What is defamation? What can you say as a news organization? What do you say in political coverage? What is allowed and what isn't? Dominion voting machines hot on the trail of Fox News after what they say is the big lie by the former president, Donald Trump. There has been no evidence that he did not win that election, but still he went on there. Now we've seen texts that show that some of the hosts that told America and let the president say that, they didn't believe it. What's right, what's wrong? John LeBoutlier joining us live, former United States House representative and political columnist. John, good afternoon. Happy Sunday to you. Good afternoon to you, Arlene, and everyone listening. And everything you just said is a thousand percent correct. It's a huge case beginning tomorrow. And I would add one more thing besides, you know, probably the most influential cable network. It's also unique, uh, Fox is, in the um, relationship it has to the Republican Party and the right, the political right in America. It, it's the spine of the right and the Republican Party. It basically dictates the daily agenda of what Republican and conservative politicians say and focus on. It's enormously influential. And has been, John, for a long time. So as we, you know, I use the word brace and, but there is a feeling in the air from those in the media politically, as you so rightly have pointed out, and anyone who's paying attention to this knows it's going to be a big deal. Fox News, confident usually, but $1.6 billion. You know, it's hard to prove defamation cases, but... When it comes to the Dominion voting case, all the legal experts that I'm following say they've got a pretty good one, John. Would you agree? All right. Well, I only say that because they say it. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the history of these things the way they do. But, yes, I mean, you know, in order to be found guilty, they have to have lied on purpose and know they were lying uh, and do it in a malicious manner. And the secret texts and messages that have come out during the discovery process have, you know, to, to this layman anyway, they look like they did know. And I'm talking about all the big hosts went mm-hmm. on the air night after night and knew what they were saying was not true. And how do we know that? Because what they said in private was the exact opposite. And then you get this unbelievable quote, which has to be why tomorrow the case has opening arguments in the morning. Dominion goes first. And they have already said their second witness they're calling, and it will be tomorrow, is the founder and chairman of Fox, Rupert Murdoch, 92 wow. years old, mm-hmm. who tried not to have to testify. And the judge said, no, nope, you're going to testify. And we know from an email that he wrote uh, during this whole thing, which is December, January of twenty. 2020 and 2021, when he said it's not a matter of red or blue, meaning Republican or Democrat, Mm -hmm. not a matter of red or blue. It's a matter of green, (laughs) meaning money. (laughs) They were printing money and they were deathly afraid if they told the truth about the election that Trump had lost, that they would lose audience and therefore lose money. And so they and it's all clear in the text messages and emails back and forth that, that we didn't yet seen, but we're going to see in the trial uh, that <clears throat> management 
said, we got to go ahead and play to the audience. We can't afford to lose them. But they had concerns, though. John, we could see in those emails that there were concerns, even from Rupert Murdoch. And then when they realized that's what their audience wanted, they reluctantly, to be fair to them, said the the text back and forth, we have to, quote, respect our audience. And so we're going to see a most modern dilemma too when it comes to the media has there been is there an anger is there an attempt to feed a base we expect it from politicians but we do do we expect it from the media that's on trial here well that is a great question because the media landscape has changed with the arrival of the internet and online news services and facebook and and then you know the 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 siloing of, of news where people who think they're right wing can only watch right wing news and only hear the same stuff that they want to hear uh, versus, you know, 30, 40 years ago, everybody read the same papers and heard the same TV and radio. And it's not that way anymore, but it's no right and news. left. It is not right, yeah. right and left, but it, it's supposed to be news, not uh, opinion masquerading as news. After all, it's called Fox News Corporation. But they're not news. When they defend themselves, they've defended themselves before. I'm not saying that they have. They say, well, why why are we even in this courtroom? It's entertainment. So there's a lot at stake here, isn't there, John? Because Fox's brand's at stake. The Murdoch name is at stake. And most importantly is what you can say legally is at stake. Politics, media, it's got it all, really. It's almost the O.J. Simpson trial. Right. Well, and there's another aspect to it that has begun Mm -hmm. already. There already is an existing filed this past week shareholder lawsuit against Fox claiming that uh, management allowed this to happen and has endangered the stock price of the shareholders. And let's just say They, that Dominion wins this case. Mm-hmm. Now, as you said, they're suing for 1.6 in compensatory damages. Billion, yeah. And then they'll, 1.6 billion with a B, you're right. <laughs> and then there's a second round of punitive damages where the, the Dominion lawyers will talk to the jury and say, you know, okay, thank you. You've given 1.6 billion to Dominion. <laughs> but for Fox, that, which is enormously wealthy. Yeah. That's a drop in the in the bucket, and they have insurance for this kind of thing. You and they will go back to behaving this way on other things. You need to teach them a lesson. You need to punish them, and that's the punitive damages. And God knows what they may ask there. It may be several billion more, all of which will be watched by the shareholders, and there could be a massive shareholder revolt and a demand in a lawsuit that management from the Murdochs on down be changed, that they, they did this, they presided over it, they aided it and they want them, they want them out. And that has happened and could happen again. And that's, Really huge. Again, really big trial and could have repercussions, certainly here in Canada as well. It's a media trial. It's a political trial, as John has laid out here. Fox News, the beating heart of the Republican Party. We have a a former president, dare we say, who has already been arraigned. We've got a lot of complications here, and we have some precedents. In any coverage of this, John, the word precedent comes out. And that I mean, if you've just laid out, we've got these legal things we're watching. I want to switch to what you were teasing there, the Murdoch family. Everyone has been riveted to succession. This is a real-life succession. We are seeing the fortunes of war within this family and see how he comes out of this, John. Exactly. I mean, many people believe succession is patterned and written off of Murdoch and Fox. and. The way the succession in the Fox empire is laid out is that when Mr. Murdoch passes on or relinquishes control, a family trust will run his media empire, and it's comprised of his four elder uh, adult children. He's got two other 
younger children who are not voting members of the trust. So it's his daughter from his first marriage, Prudence, and his three children from his second marriage. And uh, the oldest of those three is Lachlan, who currently is the day-to-day chief operating officer of Fox. And he's and he's right leaning, right? A, yeah, right, right. He's with Rupert yeah. in and running it during this fiasco of the Dominion thing. The other two, Elizabeth and James, are not involved at the moment in running the company. James was and left in a disagreement over the direction of Fox during the yeah, whole. He's Roger been disgusted Ailes. by it. Would that be fair, John, right. to say he's yeah he's, he doesn't he agree with he it? Said he was yeah. Em- yeah. said he was embarrassed by it. So, but he will be in. He's in the trust, and he has said publicly, repeatedly for years, uh, when the trust takes over the company, he is going to destroy Fox News as it now stands because he and his sister Elizabeth are um, embarrassed over it. We don't know the the oldest one, Prudence, who lives in Australia. She would be the key mm-hmm. vote. It would either be two two if she goes with Lachlan. If she goes with Elizabeth and James, three to one, and watch out, Fox will so, cease to yeah, exist. Yeah, so this is like a TV going. show, really, and this court case is going to set whether or not some bricks come out of the wall here. I mean, Rupert Murdoch, what is he, 92 years old? He just canceled his engagement. As you say, though, $1.6 billion doesn't frighten him. Now, punitive damages may start to frighten him here, but this will shake the foundation of the family, John, won't it? I think it will. I think, like I said, well, it could. first it shakes, it shakes, yeah could but it it could also shake just the current management of the place <clears throat> where even if they somehow survive this thing Murdoch may be forced to fire Suzanne Scott or people you know others who run the place that's the minimal that's going to happen and if these shareholder lawsuits get going it could be even worse and then comes what well, what I was just talking about was when he is no longer running it um then you have a, a succession drama. Who's going to take over and what are they going to do with it? Lackland yeah. would probably mm-hmm. keep it going the way it is because it prints money. It's a big money maker. You're not kidding. I want to remind our listeners that we'll take some questions here. 1-800-263-2428. I want to ask you, John, why this matters so much to you. And you kind of alluded to it. This also could shape the future of political coverage, especially on cable shows where they have a different kind of relationship to uh, the laws. John, what's at stake here about this? I mean, the, the, the charges are very serious. They tie in. I mean, let's let's be honest. There's a January 6th investigation. There's investigations about this whole insistence by the former president that he won an election. And that Dominion Voting says that their voting machines told the truth here. So there's a precedent here in political coverage and what people are responsible for. Totally. But, you know, I mean, if we go back to the election of 2020 and Trump lost the election and on the night of the election, Fox was the first to call the key state of Arizona for Biden. And uh, Trump went nuts, said, oh, you can't do it, try to get the thing rescinded and all that. And audience started turning on Fox right away Mm -hmm. and went over to other alternates like Newsmax. And politically, the Republican Party was in a spot that they're still in, which is they all know, all the senators and congressmen, they all know that Trump lost that election. But if you ask them on the record, they won't say it because they're so afraid of getting on the wrong side of Trump and on of the wrong side of Fox. So it has taken a political party and taken, as you put it, the big lie in, and infused it into every message of the of the Republican Party is that the election was stolen, was a conspiracy, it was rigged. And there are 25% of this country believes that. They totally believe it. But how can you run the country when it's based on a lie? 
it's not going to work. Well, so this is about Dominion voting. And also, this is not a criminal case here. But will the money talk here? You know, you you talked about some of those who are on the board and of Fox. Will they be concerned if there's a loss of face here? Like, I'm just assuming they're not going to win. I'm not assuming, but they've got a tough go. They may win and everything we're saying could turn around and be absolutely the opposite, that they'll have the green light to behave like this. Exactly. Uh, that's what, uh, what's at stake is because look, Fox did the same thing <clears throat> with the January 6th committee. They did the same thing with COVID. They put out a message, not based on news and the truth, but on propaganda and a, and a, a, a fear of their audience again. And, you know, they're going to have to make up their minds. Are they going to keep doing that? And the answer is they'll keep doing it if they can get away with it. If they get punished in this lawsuit, I don't think they'll be able to do it anymore. They, they need to be hit hard by it, though. Fox is loaded. There's a lot of money there. Yeah. By the way, we haven't even talked about a settlement. It's still possible that there'll be a settlement tonight or tomorrow or during the trial. Yeah. Could be tonight. Could be during the trial. Uh, They could go through the first week and think if if they look at the uh, jury every day and say, you know something, this ain't going well. They could still settle it. But while we speak, they could be discussing. Right. But it is very odd in Murdoch cases Mm -hmm. that they haven't settled. He's a big settler. They settled Ailes and um, Bill O'Reilly's sexual harassment claims. Mm -hmm. I think I read for a total of over a hundred million they paid and other ones, too. And here we don't know. But rumors are they tried to have settlement talks and they went nowhere. A Russian volcano erupted and people who are on their way to airports here in Canada, along the West Coast, all the way up to Alaska, well, their flights were canceled. So what is it about a Russian volcano that affected flights all over? It wasn't just Canada, also parts of America. We know there's a a lot of connection in the world, but hey, you would think that all the way to Russia, a volcano could not ground our flight system and affect people's lives. We're going to find out more and, um, than we ever thought we needed to know about volcanoes here. Glenn Williams-Jones is joining us live, professor and chair in the Department of Earth Sciences at Simon Fraser University. Glenn, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Crazy story here. We've got people on the West Coast. They're driving to the airport. And one of them said, I got to the counter and they said, I'm sorry, your flight's not taking off. And they said, this is a joke, right? And it is not a joke. What volcano erupted and how come it was such a huge deal here? Yeah, so uh, it's a volcano called Shevoluch, um in Kamchatka. So people are sort of thinking about, uh, you know, the game of risk. Um, this arch uh, or arc um, on the side of um, sort of eastern Russia um, forms part of the uh, Pacific Ring of Fire. Uh, on which you know Western Canada is 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 affected, and what's incredible with these these types of very large volcanic events is the volcanic ash that is sent up into the stratosphere can you know have a global effect and uh, as we're seeing now impact uh, you know right across the Pacific Ocean to impact Western Canada and the U.S. So how did it? I mean, how much of an explosion was it? Were were we prepared, people? And I say we like people like you. Were we prepared for this to happen, or was this something that so, surprised? Uh, I guess it was a surprise in the sense of the the size of the eruption. Uh, but Shevoluch has been active um, most recently since about 1999 going, you know, erupting on and off uh, to various uh, scales. But this was much, uh, just a much bigger uh, explosion. Uh, it's a hot, very, very uh, vigorous and active volcano, one of the you know, more active ones in, in Russia. So these types of events every now and then, yes, it, it can catch you by surprise. And it, it really does show, um, you know, this is a fairly well-monitored uh, system, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a natural environment. And Volcanoes are incredibly difficult to uh, to understand and to forecast their activity. 
They are. We're getting better at that, though, because it seems there's been several stories about volcanoes blowing up that they weren't expected to. Yeah, and we are getting better, um, you know, in part uh, because of, say, the modern satellite era. So the the chances, the big hazard here is, of course, this volcanic ash interacting with, with airlines. And thankfully, we now have a, a coordinated network of satellite systems um, and communication so that when these large ash columns get up, you know, because they're reaching 10 to 20 kilometers into the sky, um, we can look down on that volcanic ash, see where it is, and then divert aircraft uh, well in advance. But there's still super complex uh, problems to, to study. We know. I mean, can we say Pompeii? We know that they can greatly affect where we live and civilizations. And we built around them. We've gardened on their what's left behind in the fertile soil. Are we looking at them differently? I mean, technology has just had such a major advancement now. Can we control volcanoes more than we could? Well, we certainly will never control volcanoes, um, but we can better understand what those subtle signals of when they're going to change. Uh, and that's what we, we want to do as volcanologists is be able to say, okay, something something significant is happening. We need to increase our monitoring or maybe uh, start to look at evacuating people from, from sort of the close, uh, close proximity. Um, but, you know, these are natural systems. We're not going to uh, control hurricanes. Uh, we're certainly not going to control volcanoes. Um, but, you know, they, they are, um, they're complex. I always like to say, we think how difficult it is in Canada forecasting weather three or four days in advance. Take that same level of complexity and put it underground. All of that complex, chaotic system, we have to make inferred uh, measurements about them. So it's, it is really challenging. It is challenging, but we're glad that people are doing it. You know, I began the show, we were looking at things that we took for granted that that aren't working out for us anymore. Is this one, though, it, that's a happy story? Because we are getting better at knowing about this stuff. Look at even how we we warn people about hurricanes, even tornadoes, and our volcanoes. I mean, would Pompeii have happened? in the same way and had the same destruction today. Um, but yeah, it's, again, that's a, it is tricky, um, but I would, I would say, yes, we're, we are doing a better job uh, of being able to forecast uh, volcanic eruptions. Um, it is always a challenge is that there are so many volcanoes around the world. Actually being able to monitor all of them is, is really almost impossible at, at this stage, um, but we are getting better. The, the science behind those subtle changes uh, that we're looking at um, is getting better. And, you know, newer technology, new instruments, new computing approaches um, is getting us closer. Um, so, so, yeah, we're doing a better job. We still have a long way to go. We do. And as we go forward in this, though, this volcano, are they dangerous? Is it still dangerous? Have we ignored some volcanoes? They're crazy things, aren't they? You think they're gone and then they come back. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing. It, um, you know, this volcano will, given its sort of continued activity, um, you know, I, I think we're in a, a relatively decent position to, to try to manage the impacts. Um, but more broadly, yeah, some volcanoes will go quiet on, you know, hundreds to thousands of years. So well beyond the human timescale and then will reactivate. Um, you know, in, in British Columbia, Mount Meager, currently active mm -hmm. volcano just northwest of Pemberton, um, it last erupted about 2,400 years ago. Now, in the human timescale, that's a long time. Yeah. But in, in geologic times, that's, that's yesterday. So we still have, a, have to be able to try to do lots more research on these volcanoes to, to better understand them. And all each right. one is different. I always say the, they all have their own personality. So looking for those subtle differences is really important.
I want to talk a little bit about earthquakes here because we, we're into the mindset of you know, we we feel whenever Mother Nature does these things, we see a volcano blow or an earthquake, of, as we've just seen several around the world, devastating. We, we're kind of jolted into reality of a lack of control. Same thing with hurricanes. I was in Atlantic Canada this year when the Hurricane Fiona struck and we weren't, people were not prepared. And then it came with a vengeance here. Glenn is, is, I think this is one of the oldest things in history. We have to bow down to Mother Nature. Is she teaching us a lesson lately? Yeah. um, And I I guess the one lesson uh, is be prepared. Um, And I think this is is really important that every individual can take uh, some fairly straightforward, um, um, you know, steps to actually get prepared, and then feel more independent. So having a simple grab-and-go bag with water, you know, money, uh, contact details, plans, these are things that people can help um, to, to at least mitigate the, the impact. We're not going to stop a hurricane or, or a massive landslide or a volcanic eruption or a large earthquake, but at least we can be ready when they do happen. And, you know, certainly in areas, say, here on the West Coast, uh, where we do have uh, the potential for very large earthquakes, people really need to you know get ready and, and help their family be ready. And they do. We've had a lot of lessons, forest fires, hurricanes, tornadoes, even here in Canada, part of Canada is part of Tornado Alley now in, in some ways. It's not out of the question. We've seen what happened in Ottawa. Again, Glenn, in your world, our we in need of another warning about the reality of all these things, and especially here in Canada. We well, I, I we thought we didn't have Canada, to worry the same way. Yeah, we, we are seeing more of this. If it's, you know, the widespread flooding uh, that we had last year, um, you know, the wildfires in, in both British mm-hmm. Columbia, but uh, northern Quebec, northern Ontario, um, the, the hurricanes. So, I don't think we need more warnings. I think it's very clear that, um, you know, the system, the environment is changing. And um, it, it's the kind of thing where we do have to do our part to actually get ready for these changes. Um, and I think that that is important. People can feel confident by taking some, you know, fairly small actions um, that at least they're helping themselves and their family, uh, you know, when something big does happen. It does matter. You know, when the hurricane was about to hit in uh, Hurricane Fiona, I was in Prince Edward Island and I was covering it. I kept an eye on it as a journalist and I kept wandering out into the red dirt lane and going, oh, my God, is everybody worried? And you go into town and they go, oh, no, it always, it's it's not going to hit the same way. They always get us worked up and it hits the colder water. And I'm like, no, no, no. The water apparently is not so cold. It's going to be different this time. And now we know what happened. Those images just fused in our mind here of Newfoundland and just houses swept to sea. And I managed, I mean, there was a moment on my phone, it was like, leave the North Shore, leave the North Shore. And we were, mm-hmm. but you could barely make it back the next day. There was flooding and there was houses that I was so used to and they were gone. I had, mm-hmm. it really affected me, Glenn. I guess I'm not alone. More Canadians are kind of feeling it in their bones, just not yeah. and, and psychologically. It, but it's a normal human reaction. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not happened to to us in our lifetime or our, our sort of family, you know, our ancestors' lifetimes. It's hard to connect the, these big events. Um, but we're starting to see it. You know, we're seeing it across the country, uh, around the world, all of these, these different types of events, especially the weather-related ones like, like Hurricane Fiona. Um, and, and those are things that um, you know, we, we have to start to deal with. Some of it is the, at the individual level. Some of it is more at the government, at the planning uh, level. You know, where do we build houses? Do we uh, yeah. stop building houses in floodplains? I was going to ask you that. Is there a new reality that has to be chefed up to Canadians and North Americans here? You know, there's, there's this draw to live on the coast. Yep. We know this, this story here in Canada. Mm-hmm. It might change, though, Glenn. Is this kind of dangling in our future? We may not want to build on the coast. Yeah, I would say it's not in our future. It's in our present. 
It's, it's happening right yeah. now. Um, yeah. and, and so it is the kind of thing that, that we do have to be dealing with. Um, and and those are difficult decisions. You know, you can imagine a family farm that's been in you know in the family for generations, um, having to say, well, do we you know do we move? Do we uh, move that house? Yeah. Those are really challenging decisions. Some of the simpler ones are to say, well, no, we're no longer going to be al- allowing building on that unstable uh, coast um, because of of those challenges. So. Um, but those are politically uh, important, but sometimes obviously difficult decisions. Um, but in the long term, um, you know, it, one of the ways to do with this is it gets down to money and, and people's lives. Um, so eventually, some areas, it will be just too costly to allow um, you know, certain areas to be rebuilt. Um, they like can't that. because yeah, I saw that. Things just disappeared. You know, I go there a lot in the summer. I have for years. And things I knew just disappeared. It really affected me. Little restaurants on wharves in North Rustico, Mm -hmm. gone. Houses, gone. There are certain houses in certain places, they don't even know where they went. They floated away from the Hebrides and PEI, a couple Mm -hmm. of them. And I hear that they're they're not there anymore. It's very, very tough, Glendo. And, you know, there's... But there's maps. There's erosion and flooding maps in Canada for mm-hmm. our listeners. And if you do, it's fascinating, isn't it, to go and see yeah. where your property is and what your chance of flooding is. It's a new reality. And they're starting to put it on real estate listings now. Yep. It's a factor. Yeah. And and the, the key thing to also remember is the, those maps are not permanent. They're changing all the time. So it's a yeah. snapshot in time. And if you think, I'm just on this side of the line, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that that's actually the case because we can see a bigger storm coming down the line or, or some change uh, that, that hadn't been uh, sort of predicted. So we have to take those into account as well. People just need to be thinking more. Um, and unfortunately, in some cases, having to make really difficult decisions. Um, but we all have to be part of that and recognize, yeah, especially with the, the climatic um, you know, changes um, that many of these events are going to become more intense, um, more extreme, and less predictable. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 